Good morning. Well, I was going to be preaching from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 2.12 this morning, bite off quite a chunk. But some of the things that uh, Peter talks about there, uh, there's some things that he's alluding to that uh, are foundational to what he's saying that uh, just are not, I find, are not often well understood today. So I'm going to take a break from 1 Peter, and I'm going to do two messages just to lay down some foundational teaching so that we'll better understand what Peter is saying when we come back to it. So I want to start with a statement here. God is self-centered. Think about that for a moment. How many of you, that just struck you as a negative statement when you hear that? That I just said something negative about God, maybe even a bit of heresy. Now, take note, I did not say that God is selfish. There's a difference. And in our minds, we usually link the two together as being the same. And so when we say someone is self-centered, we see that as negative, and it is. Because for us, to be self-centered is selfish. And uh, it always has negative connotations. But God is self-centered, and it always has positive connotations. The chief end of God is to enjoy glorifying himself. And we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or put it another way, the driving impulse of God's heart is to be praised for his glory. If this were not true, he would not be God. It's necessary that God be self-centered and be God. God is all in all. God is passionate about his own glory. God is passionate about his own praise. I could pick so many passages. Uh, the whole, it just theme, this theme goes through the whole Bible, but I'm just going to pick one here. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, and uh, he's talking to the Israelites, and he's talking about warning them of coming judgment. And so I'm just picking a piece out of that. But he's delaying his wrath against them, and he says, For my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Now just listen to his words in there, to God's words. For my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, how can I let my own name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And so God is emphasizing his passion for his own name, for his own glory. His ultimate goal is to uphold and to display his own name. Everything that God does or has done is for his own glory. God does not wait to be exalted for his power, for his righteousness. God has taken the initiative from all eternity to exalt his own name and to display his glory. So everything that God does is motivated by his desire to be glorified. For my own sake, I do it. 
Now, referring back to Peter, he's been telling us that we are chosen. And there's a reason why you're chosen. God chose us for his own glory. Why did God save you? Or if you're not saved yet, he's seeking to save you. You might answer, well, because he loves me. That's why God saved me. Well, that's true. But the deeper underlying reason behind your salvation is God did it for his glory. Ephesians 1 Paul talking about our salvation, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his own pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. There's a very specific reason why God chose you. It was to bring himself glory. You were saved to glorify God's name. We can go on. Why were you created? In Isaiah 43, talking to the Israelites, but it's true of us also, he says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, whom I've formed and made, why were you created? You are created for his glory. Colossians chapter 1, talking about Jesus, how he's over, he's the firstborn of, over all creation. And all things, no matter what you can name, were created by him and for him. You exist not for your sake, but for his sake, is what he's saying. And so if you have a self-centered view of yourself, get rid of it. You were not created for yourself. You were created for his glory. You were not created to seek your own glory. Let's look at another example. As God rescued Israel from uh, Egypt, it says that he created them for his glory, or he rescued them for his glory. It's talking in Psalm uh, 106, 7, about the rescue from Egypt. He says, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. And then going back to that verse I quoted in Isaiah, Israel still exists for God's glory. And Isaiah has the prophecy there that they're going to be dis uh, dispersed amongst the nations. But then he says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. He's talking to Israel. I'll bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I'll say to the north, give them all up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so everything that's been happening in Israel's history is for his glory, he's saying. Let's go to another example. God answers your prayer for his glory. In John 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name, God says, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The reason God answers your prayers is to bring himself glory. And Jesus is coming back for God's glory. Habakkuk talking about uh, the new earth, the, the heaven and earth will be together. It says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. 
This is the reason for all eternity where we're going to live with him forever. Forever. Forever bringing him glory. Glory is the point of heaven. <clears throat> and Second uh, Thessalonians says that on the day that he comes to be glorified in his people and to be marveled amongst all those who have believed. God is redeeming a people for all eternity who will marvel at his glory. That's the purpose of eternity. In Revelation 4, we have a description of heaven. And you have the four living creatures. And uh, they look part animal, part man. Uh, each one is uh, unique. But it says that those are day and night. They are shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And as they do that, there's the elders, 24 elders there who are also, they're falling down in front of God and saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you, are created, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. There's a continual shout of praise to God's glory that's going on in heaven. That's going to go on forever. You know, this principle is so powerful that when God reveals himself, his glory has to be declared. Jesus in Luke 19, we call it Palm Sunday, but he's declaring himself for who he is. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's coming into Jerusalem. And all the people are shouting and giving him glory. And the Pharisees don't like this, and they tell them, you know, rebuke your followers. In other words, tell them to shut up. And he said, if they shut up, even the stones then would have to cry out and declare praise on this day. So everything God does is for his own glory. But this is a hard truth, and so why do we stumble over it? Well, I believe we struggle with it because... We see it as selfishness so often. When we say someone is self-centered, we think of it as being selfish. And we don't like people who are all about themselves. We don't like it when people are always boasting and exalting themselves. And we've been taught over and over not to be self-centered. We're taught that it's proud and it's sinful. And seeking our own glory is not loving. And so we transfer that about ourselves to God. So how is it that God can be totally centered on himself and yet not be self-centered as in being selfish? Well, first we'd have to say God is unique. God's in a class all by himself. God is perfection in every way. He's the pinnacle of perfection. He cannot be more perfect. You cannot improve on God. Thus, the exaltation of God is simply the expression of his perfections. And his perfections are never, because they are perfections, God is perfect, they're never expressed in a selfish way. So God can be totally focused on himself, and it's not negative, it's only positive. Because he's 100% perfect. He cannot express himself in a negative way. And in fact, the expressions of his perfections results in benefit to others. 
So let's just take his great and glorious love, for example. The expression of his love leaves us being the beneficiaries. The desire that he would be praised for his love leaves us as the beneficiaries. God is perfect and he must express the perfection of his love and thus glorify himself or it wouldn't be love. If God does not display his love to you, is God loving? No, he wouldn't be. And so God has to display each of his perfections or they wouldn't be perfections. Thus the exaltation of himself means that he wants to express his perfections. He just has to express those perfections, which results in us receiving the, re the benefit of those expressions. And thus the seeking of his own praise and his own glory is the most loving thing that he can do. There's absolutely no selfishness in it. And so God's perfections demand the expression of his perfections. If they were not expressed, they'd be meaningless, even non-existent. And his expressions have to be expressed perfectly. If they were not expressed perfectly, then God would be imperfect and sinful. God would become a contradiction to himself. So again, go back to love. He's the perfection of love, but if he did not express his love, does his love exist? If he didn't express his love perfectly, then is it really that love? And so we have that circular. God, because of who he is, he's perfect in his perfections. He has to seek his own glory. And in seeking his own glory, he expresses those perfections to you. You're the benefit of those expressions. And you, in receiving the benefit of those expressions, brings him praise and glory. So this is why we were created. We were created for God to display his perfections in us and to us and thus display his glory and receive the praise. And so the result is we're the beneficiaries. And so the highest joy that we can have is to enjoy God and God makes it possible for us to enjoy him and God, as he makes that possible to enjoy him, God gets the glory. Third reason why God is different from us. He's unique. You know, the top always gets the glory. We understand this from the human realm. For example, a king or a queen receives the glory of his or her people. Now, can a human king demand respect and glory without being selfish? Technically, I guess, but potentially, but few seem to manage it well because of their sinful nature. But we do recognize that they are due glory because of their position. And so people give them glory. But how much more so with God? There's no one greater or higher or more perfect to whom God could or would give glory to. He's the top. And so he is due our glory, and he gives himself the glory because he is the top. There's no one higher. The fourth thing, the very defini definition of being God means that everything is about him. 
If it were not, then he wouldn't be God. If there were something or someone or a power that wasn't giving glory to God and he didn't demand it giving glory to God, then God wouldn't be all in all. He'd be in competition to that other something or someone or power. And he would be limited. You would then have two limited gods with neither being God. Because the definition of being God is that he's all in all. This is why God says, I allow no other gods before me. He doesn't even allow anything else to make that claim. Now this is where sin comes in. The heart of sin is the desire to usurp God's glory and claim it for our own glory. The heart of sin is to be grasping for our own godness, our godhood. Satan fell to that. Adam and Eve fell to that desire. And we still fall to that desire. But God accepts no competition. He alone is God and he is worthy. Psalm 2 tells us that the nations, they conspire against him. They're seeking to have their own glory and to throw off his glory. And he says that he laughs at them in heaven and he mocks them. He scoffs at them. Because God is all in all and no one else can claim that position. The very definition of being God means that everything is about him. And so that's why it's declared forever, has always been declared in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. An eternal declaration that God is at the top and there's no competition there for that. Everything is about him. He is worthy of all glory and honor and power, and that's continually declared in heaven. Colossians 1, all things were created by him and for him. He was before all things, and in him all things hold together, talking about Jesus. So seeking his own glory and displaying his own glory is simply displaying who and what he is. He is God. That is who he is. When God seeks his own glory, he's not claiming something that isn't his own. When we seek our own glory, we are grasping under something, after something that doesn't belong to us. And thus it's sinful and selfish. And by necessity, God has to oppose anything that is against his glory. Which is why he has to oppose anything in our lives, which is a pride, and is why he has to promote anything in our lives that is of him that is good. Because God will allow no other gods before him. Not even in our own lives. So let's look at the practical implications of God's glory for a moment. Number one, we are created for God's glory. This life has never been about you. And the sooner you get over yourself, get over your rights get over your desires, the happier you'll be. Because joy is only found when we begin to come to that place where we give God the glory and we begin to enjoy, enjoy God. That's where joy is found. And so being created for God's glory means that God wants to work everything in your life towards the purpose of his glory. 
There's nothing that's happening in your life today that God doesn't want to work towards the purpose of his glory. He will do that which brings him glory. Faith is us believing and accepting that what's happening in my life, God will use it for his glory. Faith is believing that when God gains glory from my life, God's glory always results in my greatest good. And sometimes that is very hard to accept. You know, one time a man came to me all excited. And his knee was in bad shape and needing surgery. And he had prayed asking God to heal his knee. And uh, God healed. And he was rejoicing. And I struggled a bit with it, not long, but briefly the thought was there. That's not fair, God. Because here this guy is living an ungodly life. And God answered his prayer and healed him. And here, God, I'm seeking to follow you and serve you. And I've prayed for healing and you don't heal. I've prayed for others and you've healed. But not me. Along comes this guy and he's living on godly life and he, he prays and God heals. It just doesn't seem fair. But you know, the thought was fleeting. Because long ago, I learned that God does what he does for his own glory. And how he treats me and how he answers my prayers are for his glory. And his glory results in the best good for my life. And sometimes that means not answering my prayers. God will always answer us according to his glory. John 11, we have the story of one of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, was sick. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus. He's sick, and they just know if Jesus comes, Jesus, all he has to do is speak, and Lazarus will be well. But Jesus, when he gets the message, he just says, this will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And Jesus stays where he is until he knows that Lazarus has died. Then he goes to visit them. And we know the story, how he raised Lazarus from the dead. But you know, there's three interesting points here in this story. Jesus chose to let Lazarus die. Jesus was totally motivated, motivated by God's glory in it. And the end result was the most loving thing that he could have done for all three of them. It was even better than what they were asking for. But at the time, Jesus' behavior, they just couldn't imagine this. Hey, you're our friend. You're our best friend. How could you do this? You could have prevented it. But true love always keeps God central. And by Lazarus dying, God gained greater, greater glory. And Lazarus and his sisters gained a greater appreciation of God's love and joy. You know, that's the practical application of this in life. Life never was and never is about me. I am created for God to display God's glory. I was not created to be about my desires and my own fulfillment. The interesting thing is, we, as we become beneficiaries of God's glory, we are fulfilled. In seeking our own glory, we never find fulfillment. 
The second thing we can learn from this, just briefly, is God works in opposition to our pride. For my own sake, for my own sake, I act. My glory I will not give to another. Anywhere there's pride in my life, God acts to remove glory from me and to bring me to the place where I give glory to him. The third thing I learned from this is that God in being for himself, being a self-centered God, in being for himself, he is for you. If God were to abandon the pursuit of his own glory, we'd be losers. His aim is to bring praise to himself, and his aim is to bring joy and pleasure to us. It's the same aim. His aim to bring praise to himself, and his aim to love us is the same aim. His aim to bring praise to himself and his aim to help us in our weaknesses is the same aim. The climax of joy is to praise that which you delight in. And delight is incomplete until you express it in praise and you celebrate that which you admire. That's God's goal, to bring you to being a person of praise for his glory. When he brings you to being a person of praise for his glory, that becomes a delightful life. And you experience joy. So if your life exists for the glory of God and only for the glory of God, then here's the practical implication, as Paul said, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all. Many years ago, a teenage boy wanted me to take him deer hunting. And so on a snowy November day, he and I were out in the bush and... um, as we were hiking along, we happened upon a bear den, and the bear was in there. And this created a fair bit of interest for him. And suddenly he decided he was more interested in hunting a bear than he was in hunting a deer. He just had to have that bear. And so I kind of jokingly, well, how are you going to do that? Well, it was easy. He was going to climb a tree next to the den, and he would have his gun ready to shoot, And I was to get a long stick and I was to poke at the bear (laughs) until the bear came out and he was going to shoot the bear. Well, I jokingly suggested, well, why don't I climb the tree and you poke the bear? He didn't think that was a good idea. He'd rather be in the tree. Well, I told him I'd be more in danger of him shooting me than I would be of the bear. So I just laughed it off and I said, let's keep hunting deer. But he was serious. He didn't want to let it go. He really wanted that bear and he was going to do everything in his power to convince me to cooperate with him. But you know, it wasn't a hard issue for me to settle. I simply walked away. And eventually he had to reluctantly follow. But you know, the incident revealed something about him. His approach to life was totally self-centered. He was willing to put me at risk to get what he wanted. He gave no thought to what I wanted or my desires. You know, so many approach life like that. God exists to give them what they want. And they give little thought to what does God want and his glory. They want God to pander to their desires rather than to exist for God's desires. And so like the Pharisees, they end up honoring Jesus with their lips, for their hearts are far from him. 
And so often we come to God in that self-centered way. God loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus saves me and forgives me. And he's going to one day give me heaven. You know, we all start there. But as we mature in our faith, there should come a time in our walk with God where we walk away from that self-centered approach towards a God-centered approach where we say, God, glorify yourself in me. So as Peter later says, that as a result of our lives, in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And so we move away from that self-centered approach to salvation to a God-centered approach where it's all about his glory. And that's our driving desire. Where our lives uh, cry out the words of heaven. I'll just turn it personal instead of you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created me. And by your will, I was created and have my being. Dr. David Sakara shares the story of a dying girl in their church. Uh, she was the daughter of some of his closest friends. His wife taught Sunday school. The girl was just a young girl. And uh, she was teaching an one particular lesson about bringing God glory and honor and being useful to God. And she told the children that anyone can be useful and that usefulness brings God honor. And after the class, Sarah asked her, she said, Teacher, what can I do? I don't know many useful things to do. She was put on the spot, not quite sure what to say. Uh, suddenly she spotted an empty vase sitting on the windowsill. And she said, Sarah, you can bring a flower and put it in the vase. That would be a useful thing. And Sarah frowned and thought about it for a moment. She said, but that's not important. It is, said Mrs. Sakara, if you're helping someone. Sure enough, Sarah came the next Sunday with a yellow dandelion in her hand put it in that vase. But she didn't just do it that Sunday. She faithfully did it week after week. She had one or more dandelions to put in that vase. Every Sunday she made sure that it held a bright yellow flower. One day, Mrs. Sakara was talking to the pastor about Sarah's faithfulness. And so he decided to use that as an object lesson. And he took the vase upstairs the next Sunday and he placed it in front of the pulpit, gave it a prominent spot. And he preached an honor, uh, a sermon on honoring God through just faithfully serving, bringing God glory. And the congregation was touched by the message. And uh, it was that week that he had preached the message that Sarah's mom brought uh, Sarah to see Dr. Sakara. Sarah had lost her appetite and energy and so they ran her through a bunch of tests, and um, when he got the results back, he went personally to their home, given the bad news. She had leukemia, a fast-acting leukemia, no hope for a cure. Their daughter, Sarah, was dying. Nothing could be done for her. Time went on, and Sarah eventually became confined to her bed. She was wasting away. The day came when Sarah's mom called Dr. David to their home, Sarah, but this time, was just a small bundle, hardly able to move, and he had to tell him that she didn't have long to live. 
That was Friday afternoon. Sunday church started. Dr. David, he said uh, later, his, my mind was just on his friend's daughter. And he said that morning, everything just seemed meaningless to him. And he was just enveloped in sadness. But in the middle of the message, suddenly the pastor stopped speaking and his eyes were just wide and focused at the back. And everyone turned to look at what he was staring at. And there was Sarah. Her dad had just set her down. She was wrapped in a blanket. And in her hand was a dandelion. She didn't sit down. Instead, she slowly walked to the front to her vase, which was still perched there by the pulpit. She put her flower in the vase. And then it laid a piece of paper beside the vase. Four days later, Sarah died. After the funeral, the pastor asked Dr. Sakara to stay behind for a moment. He said, Dave, I have something you ought to see. And he pulled out a piece of paper, which Sarah placed beside the vase. David opened the, vase, uh, the paper, and there in pink crayon, Sarah had written, Dear God, this vase has been the biggest honor in my life. Signed, Sarah. That little girl got it. The greatest honor of one's life is to bring honor and glory to the only one who is worthy of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the biggest honor in my life is to serve you, O oh God, and to bring you glory and honor, for you are worthy, my Lord and my God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created me. By your will was I created and have my being. To you be the glory and the honor and power forever and ever.